and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. So we are in an era of superhero cinema. There are more superhero movies than you can shake a stick at. There are superhero TV shows. There are superhero comics. There are superhero... I'm sure there are superhero novels, and I'm just not reading them. There's probably superhero concept albums. The world we live in now, there was a Spider-Man musical on Broadway for a few years, for God's sake. One of the things I find that happens a lot is we don't really talk about, like, the performances in these. We sort of were like, okay, yeah, Chris Pratt was in Guardians of the Galaxy, and he was fun, and we like that. That's fine. Like, these are treated very disposably, which I think in a lot of cases is fair. A lot of these are very disposable movies, but there's some really great acting going on in them. So to talk about that, I wanted to get really one of my favorite people who just like talks about the craft of acting and talks about uh, the interesting things about performances, and that's Griffin Newman. He, You might know him from Amazon's The Tick, where he plays Arthur. He's also been in a lot of other great stuff, uh, including one of my favorite shows of last year, TBS's Search Party. If you haven't seen it, go seek that out. But he has a podcast called Blank Check, which he co-hosts with David Sims, who, uh, of course, is uh, has been on the show before. And he always just he talks about acting in a way that I find fascinating. And like, as someone who primarily writes and like uh, tried acting in college and was terrible at it, uh, I find it fascinating to think about it from the perspective of an actor. And like a lot of my. Uh, ability to even talk to actors about like their craft and what they do comes from listening to Griffin and hearing what he has to say. So I wanted to have him on, not just to talk about The Tick, which we will, but also to talk about his five favorite superhero performances and why he likes them. And uh, I, you know, I listed my own as well. So we had some some back and forth on that. Uh, and we didn't have any overlap, which was it planned? Who can say? Uh, but you can listen to that discussion now. Griffin, it's it's really great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me here. It's uh, you, you've been on on my podcast, Blank yes. Check, and it feels like that weird imbalance thing where like you've been to someone's house and then they <laughs> haven't been to your house. You have to invite them over for dinner. So I'm glad that we've settled the debt now. I hope you like our podcast studio. David Sims, your your Blank Check co-host, was there uh, for a few podcasts ago, and he he was really enamored of the studio. So it's pretty beautiful and it's pretty high tech. And we're also we're doing this over over like Skype right yes. now, but. Yes over a very serious high-end Skype situation. <laughs> uh, so I'm in my own proper studio, but with you on a screen and a camera set up for me, and it feels it feels like the future. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, I uh, One of the things I really love about Blank Check is when you talk about uh, performances, because I often uh, feel like, as a critic, I don't understand performance as well as I might. I obviously understand writing, things like that, a little better. So I wanted to talk to you about superhero performances, but I want to start with your work on The Tick and just like from a like a really like technical standpoint, wearing that costume, wearing that suit, like what does that do to your, I guess, acting instrument is, is the term I want to use. Yeah, it does a lot of stuff, good and bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, from the moment I did the first costume fitting and I was in this sort of, you know, room full of mirrors where they were going to poke me and prod me and pin me and, and try to figure out how to make the suit look better. You know, they're, they're pulling at the seams and I'm just kind of catching glimpses of myself in these reflections and testing out every little move I do. And you just very quickly realize there's a certain iconography and a power to wearing one of these suits. Right. And it's not like Arthur is Spider-Man where everyone knows the suit. And also this suit is pretty dramatically redesigned from the previous versions of Arthur. So it's not like it has that iconic power. Yeah. But there's just a sort of language of how these costumes look. And the weight they give to everything you do, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Michael Keaton always said, like, 
the thing I realized when I got Batman was just you have to work that suit. Yeah. You know, he realized how much lifting that does. But then the other end of that is um, they are physically restricting in all these weird, weird ways, you know? Yeah. My suit was essentially like a wetsuit. And a thing I realized very quickly was that it's a little, you know, not spandexy, but it has that sort of tension to it. So if I'm not making a concerted effort to take on a certain position, it wants to go back to neutral. Right. It wants to go back to square one. Yeah. And as an actor, you're trying to figure out ways to use your body to make all these little kind of, you know, yeah. <laughs> gestures that that imbue the character with certain meaning or, or reveal certain things about your psychology or whatever. And this is a costume that wants to uh, rob you of, of that power of like physical subtlety. So, you know, I look at the show now and certain scenes, uh, I, I go like, wow, it's crazy how much the suit adds there. And other scenes, I look at it and I go like, I should have been fighting harder to do something with my body. Right. Because right. sometimes it kind of just looks like you're standing there blankly. <laughs> well, I, I really thought it worked for the character in an interesting way because um, I, I do think like the suit itself, the, the arc of your character is like, sort of accidentally falling into this whole story of becoming a superhero yeah. and all that. So you're, it's kind of works for the emotional realism of the character, if that makes sense. I, I agree. And I definitely tried to, um, I tried to alleviate myself of anxiety about knowing how to work with the suit or not for that reason. Right. I went, this guy doesn't know how to work this suit. Um, you know, he's not supposed to be wearing it and he's uncomfortable in this world. Right. Um, and a lot of fun was, you know, a lot of the fun of playing the character was trying to find ways to make the suit look shitty <laughs> Yeah, through my own body language, yeah. you know, and my own performance and all of that, because it does innately look kind of cool. Yeah. Um, the thing went on, we realized we had a very hard time aligning the goggles on the helmet. Sure. Because you, you learn these things through trial and error, but in TV, you're on such an accelerated, it's like, it's like a bullet train. Like it has to keep moving and you don't have time to sort of shut down and stop and retool stuff. And the way my helmet was designed, the goggles didn't have any sort of articulation points. Sure. There's the part where they clipped in over my eyes, and then you couldn't move them beyond that. You could shift the entire helmet around. Yeah. But you couldn't move the goggles at all. And a lot of times we'd have problems with the goggles not aligning properly with my eyes. And at the beginning, people got really stressed out about it, you know? Yeah. But at a certain point, we went like, well, it's kind of funny. Like, it kind of adds something to every scene, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like that old hokey, like, you know, when you depict a nerd by having the crooked glasses on their face, and it adds this weird element to, like, every scene. Mm -hmm. I, I find it really funny now. You know, sometimes I'm a little frustrated watching it where I'm like, God, you can't see what I'm doing with my eyes there, you know? Yeah. But but I think it it adds to this sort of, like, man, out of place element to the story. Well, it's a, it's a really uh, interesting take on the whole tick mythos i guess because sort of one it was sort of one of the original superhero deconstruction at least for me mm -hmm. like one of my first introductions to the idea that you could sort of pull this stuff apart and kind of make fun of it and now it's like now the amazon show is almost like a deconstruction of superhero deconstructions like it, it's it's yeah. that level of meta in some ways and like you are really tasked with keeping this emotionally and psychologically grounded and like how do you find the emotional realism of this really heightened world uh, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Because it's, it's like, 
it's this constant tug of war between, you know, my sense of who the character is is very grounded because my job is to take him very seriously. And he has these very serious circumstances, this trauma in his past and his own sort of battle with mental illness, institutionalization, medication, you know, a history that's sort of implied of him constantly being written off by everyone else telling him to lower his expectations. That's a lot of stuff to work with there as an actor. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, uh, you know, I was never in a position where it was like, how would he feel about this? Because the map that Ben Edlin wrote in the pilot script was so clear about this guy, how he functions, what his worldview is, what his background is. I kind of always had like a North Star I could go to of right. how he would react in situations. But it's the tug of war between that, knowing that internally and the entire show that's going on around you. Yeah. You know, because uh, everyone else is in a much more heightened state. And sometimes they vary, and sometimes they come down to my emotional level. I'd say uh, Valerie Curry, who plays Dot, my sister, it kind of functions. We're sort of on that same show. Yeah. And then all the other superhero and supervillain characters around us are in this more heightened place. But even just getting to points where you're doing action or, you know, with doing scenes with talking dogs or with these crazy costumes, you have to put a lot of energy into reminding yourself to not get distracted by that. Right. If that makes sense. I mean, I remember I, when I was working on the pilot, I described to someone what the show was about. And when she saw the the actual pilot, she went like, it's a comedy. And I went like, yeah, yeah, of course. And she went like, but you didn't tell me it was a comedy. The way you described it made it sound like a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, that's my job is like, I have to think of it that way. It's so skewed in that direction. But it just, it's a lot of sort of discipline to make sure Peter is so big in the show you know the tick is such a big character and i think he plays it with a lot of specificity and a lot of humanity despite the fact that he is sort of uh, otherworldly you know and more than human um but it's like tempting to look at him and go like i want to have as much fun as he's having i want to go as big as he's having yeah um and it's it's just yeah it's self-discipline to try to keep yourself just in the headspace of who the guy is. You were recently tweeting about you got uh, a fan cast in a in a version of uh, the the second It movie, basically, um, right. alongside a bunch of people who are like ten years to ten to fifteen years older than you. Um, and I just was thinking about like we had Anne Dowd on very recently, who's been doing this a while, um, and mm-hmm. I talked with her about like what does it mean when somebody comes to you and says this is perfect for you, and it feels to me like you're also sort of carving out a space where people are like, this is a Griffin Newman part. Like, do what do you think about that as you're, as you're getting in the early stages of that? Like, is, is that a welcome thing or do you also have like, you really want to do other stuff? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a loaded question. There's a lot to unpack <laughs> there. And you know, the it thing was kind of like a double-edged sword because it was like, wow, it's so cool that they're like thinking of me for this, you know, that this, it was Collider, you know, not, I don't have no idea what the producers of the movie are thinking, yeah. but Collider said like, this would be a good guy for the role. Sure. And then it was like, yeah, but do I look like I went to high school with Christian Bale? Am I aging <laughs> that poorly? You know? Um, but there is that kind of thing. And I've gotten that since the the season came out of people saying, you know, uh, tweeting at me saying, you know, I see they're making a movie out of this book. I always thought you should play that character. Sure. Um, which is a really cool thing to hear because I I would feel that way. You know, mm-hmm. I would read books or see that they were adapting something I loved or read a script, you know, uh, and, and go like, man, I think I should play this character. But you feel delusional a lot of the time for thinking that way. Um, and I think, you know, when people ask me for acting advice, Right. And now, sort of after the show, the advice is more kind of career advice. Sure. You know, it's not how to act. It's like how to build a career. And I think a lot of it you can't control. 
And a lot of it sort of happens by accident. And the two main pieces of advice I give are just sort of like do everything right. at first because, you know, you, you're going to learn from everything and also you don't know what's going to work. Um, but also just kind of figure out how you play. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of actors want to be Daniel Day-Lewis. Like from the get-go, they want to believe that they are so malleable that they can fit into any role. Sure. And ideally, you want to be able to go into different roles. But I also think you look at someone like Paul Giamatti, who's been able to play like a diverse uh, selection of characters in very different films, of very different budgets, of very different genres. But he is a very specific physical type, and he's got a very specific energy and a voice, and he doesn't try to totally disappear into it. He understands what he can do with what he has. Right. You know? Yeah. And I think for character actor people like like I am and, and Doubt, I think goes into that category as well when you're not sort of a guy like like Chris Evans where it's like okay you can make him into anything you sure. can fit him into any role you know um if you want uh you have to digitally you know buff him down if you want him to play young Steve Rogers yeah. <laughs> but but it's a pretty good neutral starting point of just like this is a person yeah you know yeah, yeah but if you have a specific vibe like that I think you have to you have to own it, you know? Right. And and the challenge is to not limit yourself, is to find ways, like I think those two actors, Dowd and Giamatti, have done, of transforming that energy and putting it into different contexts and doing something different with it so that you can subtly change it, you know? Sure. And I feel like so much of what I've done up until now was in the hopes that I would someday get to play a part like Arthur, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. You know, in terms of energy and the types of roles, it was like, well, what I'm really gunning for is that kind of energy in this larger context, a character that has more meat on the bone and isn't just handing paperwork to the main guy, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, doing that on the sidelines. But, you know, I, I feel that thing now where it's like, it's not like I resent those roles. It's not like I don't want to do them anymore, but I would also love to find ways to stretch it a little bit. Right. You know? Yeah. To be able to put that into different contexts rather than just playing another sort of in over his head, you know, well-meaning, <laughs> but ill-suited for the environment <laughs> hero. Yeah. Do you want to know what I did before I came in and recorded this podcast this morning? If you've listened to this podcast at all, you know it's shaving. Yes, I shaved. I, I love my shaving. Uh, and I shaved with products from The Art of Shaving, which give me a smooth and clean and lovely shave every time. The Art of Shaving has your total routine covered, whether it's shaving or beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, or fragrance. The Art of Shaving's award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients and they feature pure essential oils. Four elements of the perfect shave have been created to deliver smooth results every day. You prep your skin with their signature pre-shave oil. And I want to say I had never tried a pre-shave oil before I started using Art of Shaving stuff. And it really does. It really does help with the process in a way that I was I was not expecting. It sort of softens everything up. It's, it's, it's really useful. Uh, you create a thick, foamy lather with the shaving cream. You apply it with a shave brush. Very important. Then you shave and you replenish the moisture with the aftershave balm. You finish off the perfect shave with one of their five fragrances, sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each cologne has been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that allows you to save on your favorite products 
while never having to worry. And our listeners are going to receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code TODD, T-O-D-D. To get this offer, go online to theartofshaving.com. Use my special promo code TODD to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. And if you're someone who, you know, doesn't need shaving products, you probably have a friend in your life who does and gift-giving season is coming up. So that's TODD at theartofshaving.com. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert, step into one of their many retail locations near you. Well, it's interesting you you brought up Paul Giamatti because I asked you to make a list of the uh, five best performances in superhero movies. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, And I assume that his work as the Rhino in Amazing Spider-Man 2 is like number one on the list. (laughs) Right, right. No. Uh, So, like, why don't we get to that now? Uh, And uh, I've made my own list as well, and and we'll just sort of see how it goes because we we do have a limited time frame. So uh, who's, who's first on your list? Who's your number five? So I'll throw out my couple of qualifiers that I use for this list. Mm-hmm. One is that I limited myself to superheroes. Okay. Just because I think if you include villains, it probably would fill up the entire list. You know, those are always the yeah. meaty parts. Those are sort of the most iconic roles. And there are too many sort of obvious gimmies there. Um, right. So I, I felt I want to limit it just to the heroes. Also because that's the kind of headspace I've been in recently. Is right. looking at all these superhero performances and trying to find the interesting ways to subvert them. Um, and I, I kind of, I put more of a focus on the less conventional choices, the yeah. people who have been inspirations for me rather than the obvious ones, just cause I feel like you kind of got to fight for your guys. Yeah. And, and these were ones that I took a lot from strangely in different directions. Uh, so my number five is one that no one else would ever put on their list. And it's Dave Foley as Mr. Boy in Sky High. Okay. That's, uh, I know you love Sky High. T- tell me why you love, love him in that Sky movie. Sky High. Yes, uh, both, both. I, I think Sky High is, is one of my favorite superhero movies, bar none, no question. And it falls into the category, um, you know, I think of what we're sort of doing with uh, The Tick right now, where it's like a deconstruction and a, and a satire of superhero tropes, but it's also done with a lot of affection. Sure. And the most sort of subversive, transgressive thing it does is present heroes very purely and present a very idealized sort of childlike view of what a superhero is rather than this sort of self-loathing, self-critical, you know, refusal of the call kind of hero, um, which I think the tick as a character represents really well. And, um, you know, I obviously, Arthur has historically been a sidekick. Right. That's his traditional role. Uh, I think over the arc of the 12 episodes we've shot of, of this season of the TV show, the six that are out now and the six that are coming out later, we become a little more like partners. But I think Mr. Boy is one of the only very good depictions of the sidekick psychology I've ever seen. Yeah, He is uh, the dude who was like the sidekick, the Robin to the world's uh, Superman, right? Uh, who is played by Kurt Russell, who's also amazing in that movie. And he sort of never got full credit as a partner. He was always viewed as sort of just like an assistant and a secretary. And um, he, Kurt Russell has continued going on being this very popular, very, you know, he's aged into a sort of elder statesman superhero. Sure. But uh, Mr. Boy gained some weight, you know, <laughs> got older, no longer had that like youthful energy and now has resigned to being a teacher at this this superhero academy, the superhero high school for sidekicks, teaching the sidekicks to lower their expectations, you yeah. know, yeah. and learning how to assist someone well. 
And it's that kind of perpetual second banana in the shadow, someone who cares about it as much as the main guy, uh, wants to do as much good, but never gets the full credit. Yeah. And and that was like a really interesting aspect to the sidekick uh, psychology that that I really wanted to get at with Arthur. And I also think it's just a deeply funny performance. Yeah. Uh, because sidekicks kind of are the character actors of the superhero world. You know, they're not the A-list movie stars. They're yeah. just like the working character actors trying to, you know, do a good job and prop up the main star. Yeah, yeah. And Dave Foley's such an interesting performer because he seems to play so a lot of a lot of variations on similar characters, but there's always this like weird darkness to him, and I, I just love that yeah. about him. And that intersection between sadness and comedy is really big to me. Trying to make things <laughs> as dark and as sad as possible while still getting laughs. Uh, I was thinking about my list and a real, also realized it was filling up with villains. So I limited myself to just one because I feel like she fulfills a lot of different functions within the film. But I did put her at number five, even though she's probably stronger than number five. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer in Batman Returns is uh, phenomenal work to me. And I, I, I would have nominated her for an Oscar. I, I don't know how widespread that that opinion is. I would have given her the win that year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think she's just fantastic. Like, uh, there's just something about her work there in that movie that is sexy and unnerving and funny. And, like, it, it hits all of these different tones, sometimes within individual line readings. And I'm just, I, I'm really blown away by it every time I watch it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I wonder, do you have thoughts on Michelle other than you obviously really like her? Yeah, I mean, I think she would have been my number one if I included villains. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's an incredible example of someone knowing what movie they're in, right. you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, she is so keenly aware. It's it's this interesting thing about film that I think makes it different, um, or, or TV as well, but on-camera acting as opposed to stage acting, which is that you have to be very aware of the world you're being placed in and knowing how to play into it or play against it, right. you know? And I think she's very aware in that movie that her biggest co-star is— the art direction. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's this entire world that Tim Burton's realized around her. But it is a very psychologically probing movie. I mean, it's about it's sort of how thin a line it is between villains and heroes in this world, how it all comes from the same sort of psychological instability. Yeah, definitely. So I think she never loses that nugget of here's a deeply damaged person who's trying to find her identity, but she also knows exactly what pitch to play it at. For sure, for sure. Who's your number four? Uh, my number four would be uh, Bruce Willis in Unbreakable. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, which which I think is, you know, obviously a, a real deconstruction of the trope and I think is the best refusal of the call performance ever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Arthur does a lot of that in the first six episodes of The Tick because he is this guy who genuinely doesn't belong in this world. You right. know, I always say it, it brings a little false and Green Lantern when Hal Jordan refuses the call because he's Ryan Reynolds. Like, we've watched <laughs> the first 30 minutes of the movie. He looks great. He's good at everything. Yeah. Why doesn't he believe in himself now, you know? Yeah. But Arthur's this guy who has a lot of reason to not believe in himself. And I think the refusal of the call can get frustrating for audiences to watch. You want to see the person do the thing you know they're supposed to do. Right. Um, and Unbreakable is this kind of experimental movie where M. Night Shyamalan said, what if I only took the first act of a superhero story yeah. and blew that up to two hours? You're just watching him refuse the call until the very end. But I think Bruce Willis, I, I think it's his best performance ever. I think, you know, it's the, the one time Bruce Willis has totally worked devoid of humor. Sure. Usually, I think there are two categories of Bruce Willis performances, which is when he is sort of throwing it off the hump with a sort of humanity and a wrong place, wrong time kind of uh, a comedy to it. 
and when he's sort of on dour autopilot mode. Yeah. And this is the one time where it's dour but invested with as much emotion and I, I think detail as he's capable of doing. And I think here's a guy who's Bruce Willis. He's an action star. You've seen him save the day in a thousand movies and he's physically fit and you know he's going to become a hero at the end of the film. But I think he plays that guy's um, psychological landscape very, very well. All he's fought with in his entire life, the expectations, what people thought he was going to believe, this sort of uh, middle-aged crisis that he's in the middle of, this yeah. depression and malaise he sunk into where he no longer believes in himself. Yeah, You know, the younger version of Bruce Willis, if told he was a superhero, would have risen to the occasion. And sure. this guy doesn't really remember who he is anymore. And I think at the end of the film when he finally comes into his own power, not just, uh, you know, saving the day, you know, saving these women, but also like saving his family, uh, which every M. Night Shyamalan movie is about. It's yeah. just about saving your family. It's gotten away from you. Uh, I think this is the one movie where where Shyamalan really pulls that off. Yeah. And I think it's because Willis really plays a guy who's lost his way, but suddenly is kind of reawakened and remembers what matters to him again and who he wants to be. I remember seeing that movie when it first came out and I, I, the audience was just, it turned against it somewhere in the middle of the movie yeah. when they realized it was yeah. weird and sad and slow. Um, yeah. but I just, I really responded to it. And I think a lot of that is just him being so willing to go dour with it in a way that's yeah. endlessly fascinating to watch and sort of cuts against his established type. It's a very vulnerable performance. Yeah. It's like a, a, a naked kind of embarrassing to watch in performance, which I love. Yeah, yeah. When it feels like actors are showing you a little too much, <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, my number four uh, is an actor who can't show you too much because it's just her voice. Uh, I picked uh, Holly Hunter in The Incredibles. Um, the, Ooh, almost made my list as well. The Incredibles is one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, and Holly Hunter, I think, is, is one of my favorite actors ever, but she plays both sides of that character, the, you know, the the harried mom and the Elastigirl superhero side. She plays both sides so beautifully. Uh, and I think that she is the one, you know, some of her line readings just like uh, establish the reality of this world more than anything else. Like I think all the time about this, this line she has where she's like, well, I just unpacked the last boxes from the move and they've like lived in this house for 10 years or something. And it's, uh, I don't know. I, I find something so interesting and iconic about that performance. Uh, and, and Pixar obviously has a lot of great voice performances, but for, for me, she's right up there in, in the top two or three. I, I would agree. She almost made my list. I was swinging her on and off. I'll mm -hmm. keep her off now because you put her there to <laughs> allow us to cover more more different performances. But I think th the thing she does really interestingly there is um, portray this kind of old hat sense of stakes and understanding of the world that she lives in. Right. The scene that always sticks out to me is when she's in the cave with them after the plane has crashed. And she explains to them that people are going to try to kill them now. Yeah. You know, she has to raise her kids really fast, really quickly. Yeah. <laughs> saying people are shooting at you. This isn't a game. Yeah. But yeah. also she knows she has to talk to them as a mother and not as a coach and says like, Dash, when you get out there, I want you to run as fast as you can. She knows that's the thing that's going to get through to him. Yeah. Um, and she's also just one of the best living actors we have. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like people are starting to remember that again now with The Big Sick, which is like the best performance. I, I think just because of the best role she's been given in like a decade. Yeah. But God, we undervalue her because she makes it look really, really easy. Yeah. And she never, uh, you know, has given a performance that I think is devoid of real earned gravitas. Even when she's drinking, you know, uh, Lex Luthor's urine, <laughs> uh, you know, when the movie doesn't earn or, or deserve that level of gravitas, she's always bringing it yeah. to yeah. the table. Uh, who's your number three? Uh, my number three would be uh, Gal Gadot in Wonder Woman. 
Great pick. And the thing I love about this performance, which I, I think is weirdly unusual, mm-hmm. it shouldn't be <laughs> that subversive, uh, but the amount of fun she has in the role. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we're in a world now where most superhero performances, I would say, fall into three categories. Yeah. It's either, you know, the the doubting hero who wasn't sure or isn't sure if they want to, you know, wear the cape and carry that responsibility and it's sort of torn up inside about it. The sort of uh, self-aware snarky hero, you know, who's commenting on, oh, oh you think I'm going to do this. I'm not really, you know, I've seen movies before. Yeah. <laughs> I know the tropes I'm not playing into. Uh, or it is just the sort of um, the performance that is too burdened with the weight of the iconography, right. you know, that is sort of pose based and sort of gravitas based and doesn't really have a real grounding of humanity in it. Yeah. And um, the thing that blew me away watching Wonder Woman the first time, but also every successive time I've seen it, is how many times they cut to her laughing or smiling. Yeah. And not in a cocky way, not in an Iron Man, like, woohoo, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, look at me being a badass kind of way. But there's the moment when she starts climbing the, the rock wall to get to the armor, the sword, you know, right. the god killer and the shield. When she's testing her powers for the first time and realizing what she can do. And she's just having such a good time. Yeah. And it gets to the essence of this character, which is she is so genuine and so pure and just driven by goodness. Mm. And she enjoys doing it, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and I think you watch how connected audiences got to that character. And I don't think it's an accident. I think that's a big part of it. You know, there's a huge part of the Wonder Woman story, uh, you know, its success in that its representation presenting a different kind of hero that we hadn't seen before. You sure. know, a type of strong female hero we hadn't seen a superhero film before. But I think the biggest thing it did is present her as a real human being who is having emotional responses in those situations and reacting the way that most of us probably would if we suddenly had that power, which is, this is so cool. I'm a superhero. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's, you know, deceptively complicated work for that reason. Yeah. But I, I've always argued, you know, having characters laugh on screen brings audiences closer together sure. uh, to the characters. And, and people don't use that tool, I think, often enough. And Wonder Woman uses it really well and Gal Gadot uses it incredibly well. You know, a big part of the uh, discussion around that was how uh, Patty Jenkins, the director, was unafraid to depict unabashed sincerity, like what people would call cheese. And I thought that was one of the reasons the movie worked as well as it did. Um, And I think I'm going to pivot from that to my number three, which is uh, Christopher Reeve in Superman, Uh, specifically the first one. But I I like him in all of them. I think he's even pretty good in three, which is a terrible movie. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But he just he has that like rock solid decency that you want out of somebody playing Superman, who is, who is my favorite superhero for vaguely personal reasons. Um, but uh, one of the things you've said on blank check that's hung with me a lot is that the hardest thing to do is just to play somebody who's like good and decent and, and normal for lack of a better word. And I'm wondering if like you have thoughts about that in terms of like how hard it must be to play Superman. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at that performance and I can't figure out how he did it sure. because you know, the, the the thing is, what I was sort of getting at earlier is in a certain way, it's easy to play a character like Arthur who has so much psychological conflict baked into the cake, right? right? There's a lot of work involved to depict that correctly, but you don't have to go around searching for things to hang your hat up on. But someone like Superman who is just good, yeah, you know, yeah. there's not a lot of internal struggle. Mm-hmm. So it's very 
easy, I think, to fall into making that character a series of poses or just kind of a cipher or adding unnecessary internal conflict, you know? Yeah. Um, rather than just playing a moral compass and a drive that I think there's there's a lack of complication within that character that I think is difficult to play for a lot of actors who tend to, by the nature of their training, want to overcomplicate things. Yeah. Um, and that character, that performance is just so graceful um, yeah. and so delicate and so romantic, mm-hmm. you know, in every sense of the word. But the other thing now that I, you know, the, the area in which I have the most respect for him now is I had to do a lot of flying, like, green screen wire work for The Tick. And I have no idea how Christopher Reeve did that, especially with, you know, the technology being 40 years less developed than what I had. Yeah. Because I always was terrified. Arthur as a character is freaked out when he's flying, and I was able to play my discomfort. But those things are so goddamn uncomfortable. Huh. And for him to hit these, like, ballet poses, really, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, it, it is astonishing. And there's just, there's such a groundedness at the center of that character. He knows exactly who he is. And the conflict is, how am I going to do it? Not whether or not to do it. Yeah. It's it's kind of masterful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who's your number two? Uh, my number two pick is a, a an odd one because mm-hmm. I feel like it's sort of uh, betting on the future of the character more than what we've seen him do so far because it's okay. kind of been a sidelined character up until this point. But it's uh, uh, Paul Bettany as uh, Vision in Great. the Marvel movies. Sure, sure. Um, and it's a performance I can't even totally explain why I'm so drawn to. But every time he's on screen, I just want to pump my fists. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a level of comic book weirdness that I don't think we've really gotten in superhero movies up until this point. Right. Um, he's a very bizarre character. He's one of those characters that used to scare people off of getting into reading comics. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I remember in high school when I'd be reading a book and someone would go, so explain this to me. Who's that guy? And you go, well, he's an android. He was made by this guy, but then he's got the memories of another person, but he <laughs> dates this woman. But he's come back to life and they go, yeah, never mind. I don't want to even get into it, you yeah. know? And they've made this character who— 10 years ago would have been watered down. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. they would have done a sort of Fantastic Four 2, Galactus is a cloud kind of simplification sure. of his weirdness. Um, and and they haven't. And the thing, the root of Vision as a character and something I think uh, Tom King's recent uh, Vision book, uh, his 12-issue run, um, which is an incredible, incredible series if people haven't read it, got to is that Vision's main thing is that he's trying to figure out humans. Yeah. You know, he's this guy who's trying to fight for humans and protect humans, but also understand who they are. Mm -hmm. And it's not because he's coming from a place of superiority, which I think Ultron is kind of coming from. He finds their qualities to be admirable, you know, Mm -hmm. even though they are kind of limited, their innate instincts he finds to be very compelling. Um, And he is sort of this stranger in a strange land. Uh, And Paul Bettany does a really good job of, I think, threading this needle, the thing the comics always depicted was that the characters would sort of get emotionally involved with Vision and then have to step back and remind themselves that he wasn't a person. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, he was deceptively human in his emotions, despite the fact that he looks so otherworldly and his decisions are so inhuman. Uh, Not inhumans, but inhuman. (laughs) Um, And I I think Paul Bettany is an actor who I think is crazy underrated, you know? 
Um, I, I think always adds more than is asked of him in any performance somehow. And he's one of those people who just has some weird charisma yeah. that, that adds a lot. Um, but Vision has always been my favorite arc of, uh, you know, Civil War and uh, Age of Ultron, him on the side just trying to figure out how to exist in this world of men. Yeah. And he, Bettany displays that, uh, depicts that entire spectrum with a limited amount of screen time. Yeah. So I'm excited to see Infinity War where he would, you know, going off of the comics, play a larger role, see if he gets to put that arc a little more central to the story. Paul Bettany is currently playing the Unabomber on this uh, Discovery Channel miniseries. And like he yeah. has single-handedly made the Unabomber like a super compelling character where I didn't know that that was possible. Um, I think that guy can kind of do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, my number two uh, is I, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, specifically Hugh Jackman in Logan. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I could take or leave some of his other Wolverine performances. He's usually pretty good, but I don't think he's ever been as good as he was in Logan in a way that elevates that movie that maybe the movie itself doesn't necessarily deserve. But like I, I love Logan and I think it's entirely because he's so tapped into that. Uh, John Wayne, it's it's basically like he's depicting John Wayne in the last shot of The Searchers for an entire movie. And like yeah. that to me is just so endlessly compelling. And I, I love that idea of uh, the immortal man aging so much. I, 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 I have that in a lot of other of my other favorite stories. And I, I think um, to me, it's his best work as Wolverine. And I, I hope it remains his swan song. I don't know how you felt about it. You know, I, I have some issues with that movie, but I think his performance and, and Patrick Stewart's performance in yeah. that movie are incredible, like yeah. incredible, incredible work. Um, and, you know, part of it is that the movie gives more real estate for sort of human drama than most superhero films do. It gives them more meat to play. Sure. Um, and there's the whole interesting angle of of sort of the film presenting them as these are the real world versions of those characters you've seen depicted before in sort of the more pop context. Um, but I also think a lot of it is that for both of them, these are two guys playing characters they played for like 20 years that are just kind of in their bones. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, it's a secret, you know, uh, they never talk about this, but Logan's a Western. Uh, it's not something the filmmakers have ever mentioned in any press stop, no, but Logan's never. kind of a Western. Um, but, but both of them have that kind of unforgiven true grit weight where yeah. they were two guys, the kind of backbone of the first modern superhero movie in 2000, you know? Um, and now here they are almost 20 years later kind of trying to wrap up these characters with the perspective of how much the entire genre has changed around them. And and the X-Men series is seen as kind of this weird, like, I think, rusty jalopy at this point because yeah. it's like, well, it's this weird continuity that doesn't make any sense before everyone was doing interconnected universes and trying to be so committed to that sort of, like, long-term storytelling. And this gives them a film where they're totally freed of those shackles and sure. just able to play these characters as people. Uh, with that added weight and, and and uh, you know, give it that sort of depth. And I think, you know, Jackman is an actor who we've talked about a lot on Blank Check is uh, really good at being hammy. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I think big performances aren't a bad thing. No. Uh, and I think he knows how to play within the film he's in very, very well. He understands tone and genre really, really well. But it is nice to see him do such a stripped down, largely physical kind of emotional performance like this because he rarely gets that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Who's your number one? I'm curious to see if we have the same one. Maybe I'll just agree with you, whoever it is, to make it seem like we did. <laughs> okay. I, my number one was just sort of a given because uh, it's my favorite living actor. Mm -hmm. 
it's the performance I kind of think about the most. It's the background on my phone screen, mm. uh, which I committed to drunkenly five years ago one night and woke up in the morning and said, I think that's probably the best decision I've ever made because I never, ever regret being able to look at his face and use that <laughs> as a piece of inspiration. Uh, it's it's Michael Keaton as Batman. Okay. And I would say specifically Batman Returns. Sure, sure. He's my favorite living actor because I, I think he is a guy who has always found a way to um, – he's almost got this Bill Murray quality. Uh, you know, Bill Murray at his peak in his like 80s vehicles was able to sort of stand one step outside of the movie yeah. and function as this sort of Bugs Bunny figure, kind of wink at the audience and, and chew on a carrot. Mm. And go like, isn't this ridiculous? Yeah. Which is why Ghostbusters works. I mean, that's the entire reason that Ghostbusters works. Otherwise, it would just be, you know, a, a Dan Aykroyd lunacy. <laughs> and the combination between the Dan Aykroyd lunacy and a guy who goes like, I know this is crazy, but just stick with me. Yeah. Is, I think, the key to this, that movie. Um, and Michael Keaton is able to do that, uh, I think, even in his dramatic work. Right. Um, because he is the sort of very unconventional movie star. I think even in something like Spotlight, where he's being, you know, he's very stripped down. He's in an elder statesman role. Um, he's in a, a very human ground level story. There's something to just sort of his swagger and his weird offbeat energy. Um, you know, he he brings this kind of movie star power to anything he does. Um, but it's tied to this brokenness. I mean, yeah. he likes playing maniacs, you know? Yeah. And all of his characters are either maniacs or at the very least kind of manic. Yeah. Uh, and that's what he brought to Batman, which is to make Batman kind of scary because the guy feels like he could lose his mind at any given point yeah. in time. Yeah. His key to the character was uh, Batman is like the one way he's figured out not to have a complete emotional breakdown. <laughs> you know, he has not at all dealt with the trauma of his parents' death. And this is his weird coping mechanism is to dress up as a bat yeah. and and go fight thugs. And um, I, I think that weirdly makes it the most realistic depiction <laughs> of, of what would draw someone to become a superhero. You know, yeah. that thing that's always tough in a movie is, is how do they cross that final threshold where they decide to put on that costume and do it? And it's usually just a leap that the audience has to go on and go like, okay, you've done enough world building. I get it now at this point. But what he did was kind of make Bruce Wayne less knowable than Batman. You see how much less uncomfortable he is out of the suit. Right. That Batman kind of is his true identity and Bruce Wayne is kind of the, the false persona he has to put out because he doesn't really know how to be a person anymore. And it's such an oddball performance that doesn't belong in that movie and doesn't belong in that genre. But the whole movie kind of bends around it because I think Burton Wisely, that's why he hired Keaton. He knew Keaton could bring that to it. And, um, you know, I, I use that as kind of my 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 North Star. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the performance I'm most inspired by. I steal a couple moments specifically in The Tick from Keaton. There are mm -hmm. moments where I'm just straight up doing Keaton and Batman, even though it's a very different character, but a character who's equally driven by mental trauma. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I tweeted like five years ago while rewatching Batman Returns, on, you know, for the upteenth time. Uh, Michael Keaton's hair in Batman gives me hope that I might get to play a superhero someday. Yeah. And it's like my proudest moment that I tweeted that and I somehow achieved my goal. <laughs> uh, but that I achieved specifically getting to do work that I think is nowhere near as good as what he's doing, but is similarly odd and kind of subverting the superhero tropes from within. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's it's my favorite. Well, I I did I specifically did not pick Keaton because I knew you were going to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, like, I knew he was going to be on your list somewhere. I love I love his work in the Batman movies. Um, but mm. for me, I'm going to go with somebody who was my favorite living actor until he sort of disappeared down this hole because uh, he ended up in a lot of Marvel movies. But uh, I think Robert Downey Jr. in especially Iron Man three is just like. To me, he's kind of like this mirror image of what Christopher Reeve is doing in Superman, where he's yeah. playing the other side. Like we like to, America likes to think of itself as Superman, but also likes to think of itself as sort of that Han Solo rogue type. Uh, and to mm-hmm. me, like Robert Downey Jr. embodies that so perfectly. Uh, and Iron Man three is just one of my favorite superhero movies. It's so weird and uh, and Shane Blackie uh, that uh, I, I can't I can't help but love it. But I think that his way with dialogue and his way with um, being in the movie, but also sort of outside of the movie, just as, to me, it works really well. Um, I, I know you like Iron Man 3 as well. Yeah, I mean, Iron Man 3 is a masterpiece. It's the best Marvel movie. Don't at me, bro. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think it's brilliant for most of the reasons that you just outlined. And I, I agree. I think that's his best performance because I think it's the one where uh, Tony Stark has a real arc. Right. It's kind of the turning point. I think they start to build that in Avengers. Mm-hmm. But the first two movies are, you know, it, it, he has that kind of spiritual awakening in the cave, right? Yeah. He questions what he's been doing. But there's always this sense that Iron Man is this kind of power fantasy, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. It's like the same thing as Batman, where like people want to be him because he's essentially like a super rich, super powerful <laughs> Republican who's able to fight yeah. All the enemies, yeah. you know, that, that a jingoistic American would want to fight. Yeah. And there's this sense of even if he's doing the right thing in the first couple of, of you know, Iron Man performances, he's maybe doing it for the wrong reasons. He's maybe doing it because he gets off on the power, on right. the sort of the fame of it, you know. Um, but Iron Man 3 is the one where I think Shane Black wisely uh, you know, people derisively call that movie like Normal Man 3 yeah. because of how little time he spends in the suit. But I think that's what's interesting about the movie, that it takes this guy who's become a hero only because of this set of tools he has and strips him of it and tests, where do you actually stand now if you don't have these things going for you, if you right. don't have it in your corner and you don't have that kind of power on your side? Um, and I also think the way it introduces the new technology where the suits are now kind of sentient and can exist outside of him it's a thing, you know, it, it parallels my my number one. But uh, Batman Returns, because of Catwoman being this sort of dark mirror as Batman, forces Bruce Wayne to sort of address the schism between his two identities. Sure. You know? And Iron Man 3, I think, does the same thing. Yeah. It's forcing him to reckon with Iron Man as a symbol versus Tony Stark as a person by literally removing Iron Man from him and giving it its own body and its own life. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's I think it's a great performance. I also think he plays PTSD really, really well in that movie. Yeah, definitely, definitely. While staying funny and keeping all of his sort of like jazzy movie star Robert Downey Jr. stuff that you want to see him do, yeah. I think he keeps the stakes in that performance of what this guy's brain is is going through, which is a, a slow unraveling. Sure, sure. Uh, well, we're we're headed into the end of the show, but before we get to the the, the questions I ask everybody, I want to ask you. This episode's going up in October. Halloween is coming up. If somebody is going for Halloween as Arthur, do you have tips for them and like how to wear that costume? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, my tip for you would be uh, pick a breathable fabric. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I would definitely sacrifice uh, accuracy for, uh, you know, physical comfort, especially mm-hmm. in terms of sustainability. Yeah. If you plan to wear it for a couple different nights. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that that thing can be a real sweat trap. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and also I, I would advise you to pick the lightest weight material you can if you're going full wings. Mm. Uh, you know, we made the wings on the series are entirely CGI. They made a practical set of wings and they were so cumbersome, <laughs> not only just on a weight level, but also it was impossible for me to move yeah. with them. You know, mm -hmm. it adds this weird kind of, uh, a force in your back, um, that was impossible to work around. So I, I'd say, you know, like cellophane and popsicle sticks, yeah. make those wings as small <laughs> and as maneuverable as you can, or else you're going to have a really hard time navigating in and out of a party. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, let me pivot into the the questions I, I, I like to ask everybody. Uh, we ask our some of the we ask our guests some of the same questions every week. This week, uh, here's one we're doing just for the month of October. What is your proudest Halloween costume moment? Wow, uh, my proudest Halloween costume moment. Um, you know, uh, w when I was in uh, high school, late registration came out, the second Kanye West album, sure. which I was pretty obsessed with. And I decided to be Kanye West that Halloween. Uh, but I was very aware of the needle I was threading in terms of that being potentially very offensive. Sure. So I just chose to – he had such a specific style at that point. That was when he was kind of into his like – uh, brightly colored uh, suits uh, and blazers phase, right. which I had a similar fashion aesthetic. <laughs> so I I wore like a yellow blazer and a, a pink and black polo and pink khakis and loafers. Um, and that was my Kanye West Halloween costume, which was pretty oblique. You know, right. I didn't think people would really pick up on it. And uh, by the end of that night, when I was walking around New York City, people were were yelling out, hey, Kanye, mm. which I was really proud of that I felt like I had found a way to communicate that without uh, tipping into uh, just terrible, terrible, insensitive territory. <laughs> um, next up, uh, who's the actor you've learned the most from that you've never met? I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, double down on my praise, but I, I think Keaton, I take a lot from. Right. Just in how I don't think there's ever a scene that's uninteresting. Mm -hmm. He is always able to, regardless of what he's playing, what genre he's in, um, nothing ever feels like exposition, you know? He's yeah. always giving a, a little bit more than he needs to and taking it from an unexpected place so that, um, you know, I like performances that keep me on the edge of my seat. Not yeah. just because of tension, but because I can't totally figure out what they're doing or right. who they're playing. Um, and I think he did that incredibly well. I think he and, you know, my favorite non-living actor is probably Philip Seymour Hoffman, who was sure. able to do a similar thing just with the depths of what he was playing. Right. And his guys were usually very bottled, but he was always throwing more emotion into every single little moment. Whatever emotion that was, then you kind of needed. But also his confidence in his restraint, not needing to to show all of that. Sure, sure. And finally, uh I, I feel like you're going to have a good story for this one, so I'm going to I'm going to pull this one out. What is your worst pop culture outing? Whether that's a bad movie date or uh, you went to a concert with some friends and they just weren't into it. Just like you went and did something pop culture with somebody else and they just hated it. That's a tough question because I've had so so many of those. <laughs> uh, I you know it is it isn't quite this, but it's the one I always uh, think back to. Um, you know, it wasn't someone hating it, but it was the moment that was kind of like, oh, this is what the rest of your life is going to be. This is going to be the central conflict for the rest of your life. My first date I ever went on was uh, in sixth grade, and it was when Josie and the Pussycats came out. Sure. 
And I had just started dating this girl, you know, very, very, very seriously, yeah. uh, you know, a 12-year-old dating. And we went to see that movie. And I, I think that movie is a, a uh, an unqualified masterpiece. Sure. I, I think it's a perfect movie that was way ahead of its time that no one got. Um, and I, at the moment, even, you know, I think I uh, appreciate even more now than I did then as, as hopefully a wiser person, <laughs> someone who has aged beyond that. Um, but I could kind of see how much it was subverting the kind of movie it was supposed to be, right? you know, and sort of sticking its tongue out at the audience that it was supposedly courting. And I was so wrapped up in the movie that she kept on making overtures to try to get me to kiss her and I wouldn't uh, take. I did not bite the entire film. So she kept on complaining about how cold the movie theater was because <laughs> uh, I think she wanted me to hold her hand or put my arm around her. And I kept on going, yeah, 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 that's so weird. And then just leaning further into my seat to watch the movie. And I think she dumped me like four days later. I think we were dating for a total of like 10 days. Um, you know, I ruined an entire relationship because I didn't want to miss any of Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. Waste any, you know, valuable uh, screen time on on dumb making out. <laughs> hey, I made out to uh, Prince of Egypt while I was uh, sitting next to my sister. So that's... Uh... <laughs> That's an even even better, even more awkward situation. Uh, Griffin Newman, mm -hmm. thank you very much for stopping by. Uh, the tick thank is you so on. Much for having me. The tick is on Amazon. Blank check. You can listen to on wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you do next. Yeah, and second half of the season of Tick will be coming out soon-ish, but look forward to the remaining six episodes of season one. I certainly am. Thank you so much. Thank you. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you hadn't guessed, that's me. And one of my favorite things in the world is reading closing credits. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. We recorded in two different studios this week. Uh, Griffin was at the Vox Media Podcasting Studios in New York. I am at the Village Workspaces Podcasting Studios in Santa Monica, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. Please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to it. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher some other thing I've never heard of. It really helps us get the word out. It helps us get great guests. It helps us sort of keep the ball rolling on this show that I, I hope you're enjoying. I'm certainly enjoying making it. We will be back next week with another great person from the world of arts and entertainment, culture and media. Just, you know, somebody that I think is interesting. Until then, I'm, I'm so sorry to all the Christopher Nolan fans because every time, like, we we talk about, like, well, maybe we should have something from, like, The Dark Knight in there, and then it never comes up because it's such a gimme that, like, it doesn't happen. But, but I like The Dark Knight. I promise you it's a very good movie, and I'm sorry. How many, like, time zones were you in on this press tour? I should probably save this for the show, but I'm, I'm genuinely curious. We wrapped on the tick. Then we went to Comic-Con. So that's that time change. Then I come back from Comic-Con. I start on the movie. Then I go from the movie to London. Wow. There's that time change. Then I come back. Then I finish the movie, at which point it had gotten like very late. Like it was perpetually 2 a.m. wrap times. Right. And then I wrapped on the movie at 3 a.m. on a Friday. And the next morning I flew out to L.A. again and then went from L.A. to Australia. Good God. <laughs>